Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. The quote of the day is by Joyce Wallace. While in the process of creating anything in our lives, we continue to create ourselves. We are the canvas, the poem, the song, the unfinished masterpiece. Hello everyone, my name is Addie Hirschton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, teacher with the Indianapolis Art Center, author and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and artists and inspire you to help you move forward. Today's podcast features an interview with performance artist Jason Adams and the story of The Boy Who Drew Cats. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Jason Adams. Jason Adams started his acting career at the North Carolina School of the Arts. He later went on in Chicago, where he studied improv and sketch writing. Jason Adams currently manages science programs at the Connor Prairie Living History Museum and works as a comedian at Comedy Sports Indianapolis. He performs regularly at events like Indie Fringe Festival, the Theater on the Square, and many, many more. I met Jason when we both attended Athens Drive High School in Raleigh, North Carolina. Together we performed in musicals. Since that time, our paths have crossed on many occasions, and now we both live near each other in Indianapolis. Jason is one of those friends who is always up to something exciting and interesting, and I'm so happy to have him as a guest on the show today. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Addie. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Yay, hooray. All right, let's dive in. What is the story of how you became a performance artist? Okay, so uh, we went to high school together, and Mm -hmm. there was a girl who went to school with us named Lauren Horst. And Oh, you remember her? I think so. Okay, and she uh, was going to go to North Carolina School of the Arts, and she came and she was talking about it, and she was really excited about it. And, you know, you have one of those moments where you can know you're going to do something. It was a really like a very clear moment. And I applied and I got in and she didn't end up going. She decided not to go. But I went and like going to school there and being around people that were really interested in performance and took it seriously and it was a real thing that you could do made it real. That's the moment where it it, it became something I would do forever. Yes? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And did you ever separate the theater that is, you know, very scripted acting from the improv? I mean, you've definitely gone in an improv direction. Was there a moment when you decided to go down that path instead? What was great about the the training at School of the Arts is the man who taught us, his name was Bob Moyer, and he was a student of Paul Sills, who was really huge in making improv a thing. Okay. Uh, and he was just an amazing teacher and he taught it in such a way that it made sense, right? It made okay. sense. It made sense to me. It's, it, 
it's the way my brain works. Uh, and so being exposed to it at that age, right? Okay. I got it when I was 17, 18 years old. And it's, it's sort of the basis in, in my training. And okay. so that is where I start with everything. Yeah, so there's never like a moment of, of split, but there is a that really diving in technique of it, diving okay. into the theory of it and like responding, responding to improv as a way to make theater. I really like that feeling of not knowing what's going to happen next. And that, that's the thing I grab onto. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because some of us, I mean, I'm not going to name any names in this room, <laughs> but some of us really like to feel like we're in control. You like not being in control? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, no, I, I like, it's not not being in control. Because I argue, think if something can't move, there's no freedom in that. There's not as much joy in it. No, I because I get wanting to to nail things down. My wife likes to nail things down too, but she's an improviser also. Yeah. Uh, I like sort of the jumping off clip feeling. I really, really. Okay. Okay. Does this make well, sense? It does, and a lot of people would be very interested in that idea of control and not control. Because if you're doing improv, and for those of you who have not seen Jason perform it, it's very, very funny. If you have a show, you've got some things that maybe you know you're going to do, and you it might be formatted a bit like the one that you did at Indie Fringe, right? where Jason was a mind reader, and he had several stories that were incorporated, but there was also moments of just reacting to the audience. You have a format, but then you're willing to let go of it and go with the flow of what the audience is thinking and feeling and responding to them, which is part of why it's so exciting, right? Yeah, I mean, do you absolutely. And so so here's what it makes me think of. Do you, So you're a painter, right? And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people listening are painters. Um, and there was a video of and I hate I hate to bring up Jackson Pollock um, in this because <laughs> uh, it's the really obvious choice. But there's a video of him of him painting, and uh, he's he's responding to the thing that just happened before, like yes. like something happens, and then the next thing is in is in direct response to the thing that happened before that, which, and so on and so forth. And it, together it builds this painting, and they're trapped. He's trapped. Mm -hmm. he, he's trapped in the form of that canvas, right? It's not going right. to go anywhere. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and he knows that whatever he does is going to be on that canvas. Yes. That's right? his format. Yes, exactly. And that's the, that's the same as improv. We know it's going to be over in 40 minutes. Like, <laughs> Right? I have this, this show is 45 minutes long. And for good or for ill, uh, it's going to be done. And whatever we do in there uh, can be new to us. Yeah. And have you had any times where it went over 45 minutes because it's going so well? Or, oh my gosh, we just have to kill this. It's just, we got to cut it short. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, there's a really, there's an amazing, uh, so Del Close, he's sort of one of our theorists. He likes to say the great thing about improv is that sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it goes terribly and sometimes you fall right on your face. Yeah. That's fine too. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and so, yes, there are times when... Yeah, it just fails beautifully, <laughs> and you have, you have it just has to die, right? And that, and that's fine. But just like you said, there are times when it just soars. It's, it's great. 
I think now's the perfect moment to ask you what makes something funny. And to preface this, I'll say that when I was training to be a storyteller, I had different teachers tell me, well, things can be funny if they're very unexpected. Things can be funny if there's a pause and then the the audience just can't take the tension of the pause, so they have to fill it with laughter. Or perhaps something is just so true that it hits them over the head like an anvil and they just can't help but laugh. Yeah. What thoughts do you have on what makes something funny? Uh, I think I think you're right. Like I think everything you said is is right. Someone said once that a raptor is is a response to it's, it's almost like a fear response. It's a response when you're attacked. And so if that's true, and I think it might be, something is funny when tension is built and that tension is released. Okay. So uh, when when you pause, you, you said like if if you if you give something a very long pause, mm-hmm. and people have to fill that with laughter, the pause builds this tension. It's slowly building it, and it gets kind of hard to take after a while, right? <laughs> and then we can, yeah, we do that exactly what you did. We can, we can laugh a little bit. <laughs> if some if we laugh because something is true, then we're laughing. We're off. We often laugh because something is painfully true. Yes, and so when you point to that pain builds that tension very quickly uh-huh. and the laughter cuts that tension. Mm-hmm. There's a great Woody Allen quote. He says that uh, comedy is tragedy plus time. <laughs> and he's talking about you're pointing to an, an old wound. Okay. You're sort of poking at it. Because a goofy character is funny sometimes too. I don't know. I'm trying to think of somebody who is like really like, okay, so you get somebody like Jim Carrey, right? Or, or, or Jerry Lewis or, or Robin Williams, mm-hmm. um, and they choose like these big, giant, clowny characters mm-hmm. that are almost threatening. I think maybe the threat, the the bigness of the character, is the thing that builds that tension for us and cuts it. Okay, I could see that. Really? <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I, I could see I that for sure. Hmm. So, what's the number one reason why you continue to do the improv theater? I love it. I really, really like it. There's the joy to it. And the great, and it's a thing that only exists in that moment, mm-hmm. right? Like in, it doesn't, it's, it's weird. If you ever watch, uh, there's a couple of people who've tried to make a movie like of an improv show. It, it doesn't really work very well. It's really, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that works best in the room, in the moment. We're doing a thing between us right now. And What's important is is us, right? And that's what's great about it. And that's why that's why you have to keep doing it because yeah. it's it's ephemeral. It's gone. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, I know that you're not a painter like I am, but we painters often struggle with the two roads you can go down or two philosophies of painting where one is we're doing it for the process. Mm-hmm. Jackson Pollock, back to him, was real big on the process. This is in the moment now. I'm I'm making it the end result does not matter at all. And then you have the other side of things where, okay, I'm making this piece so that it will communicate with the viewer later on. Mm. And so then the relationship will be in the future. Whereas if I make something, I'm making it for myself, maybe it's art therapy, I'm purging something, that's now, whereas the other is very future-based. And and I pull both ways. Do you see that in the work you do at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because because the the game of improv is to be 
as much in this moment as possible, as, as, as present right now as you can be. Mm-hmm. And that does a couple things. For me, as a human being, it's it's a it's a bit of it's a bit of therapy. I, I I can be a bit of an anxious person. I can be a bit of a a wallower. I can be a bit of somebody who gets in my head real easily. And the the process of improv is is kind of, works against that, right? Mm-hmm. While I'm in the scene, while I'm playing this game, my job is to only be in this moment, right? Okay. And so that helps me right now. And that's and that process is supremely important. And and you talk about talk about things like like kind of moving like like staying with people and you know the thing that when you're successful in improv uh, and and when you're watching it when you're watching a successful uh, game or a a scene or a song or whatever um, what's what's amazing about it is you can it's it's true in a way that you never you don't see very often. Right, and so just like just like a just like a Chekhov play, just like uh, a really great piece of theater, I argue that that can stay with you. That moment of of true connection can stay with you for a very very long time. Yeah, definitely. And I think if we can speak to each other through any art form, then we're communicating, and we'll both grow. You know, the, the artist and the viewer will grow, and bounce off of each other, so to speak. What advice would you give to your younger self if we were to go back to high school when I knew you? What did you say to yourself? (laughs) I would tell my younger self, um, uh, can we swear on your podcast? I would would (laughs) tell my younger self to get his shit together is what I would do. Uh, What my younger self did that I'm not proud of is my younger self would say he would was going to do things and then not do them, which is still an issue that I deal with a lot. It's, a, it's my biggest issue, in fact. But, you know, to do art, you have to do art, right? Okay. Don't you? Like, like and that is the easiest thing. The easiest thing in the world to do is nothing. Uh-huh. Right? And so I would tell myself to do more. Okay. To, you know, I'm finally getting to a place in my life where I'm comfortable making my own things and, and putting them out there. And, and I argue it's um, being okay with yourself issue. When I, was, when I was 22, 23, I felt like I needed someone to give me permission to make something, to, oh. to build the infrastructure for me, for me to put whatever show I want to put on. But I realize now that, no, if you want to do something, you do it. And you and if you want to put a play up, you find a room and you put that play in that room. Yeah. And I always, I knew that intellectually, like we all know that intellectually, but you have to know it in your body. You have to be willing to pull the trigger on these projects. Mm. So that's what I would tell my younger self. I would say, do the stuff you you want to do. Just do it. <laughs> Wonderful. What's your favorite book or story relating to your craft? So uh, a gentleman named uh, Mick Napier wrote a book called Improvise. What's great about that book, it's, 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 it's a workbook. It's completely practical and it's not, it doesn't delve into the theory a lot, but it's how to make yourself a great improviser. It's how to, how to, do, it, how to do it for you. And his theory is that, is that you, you take care of yourself. You make bold choices for yourself. And that will that'll give gifts to everyone around you and that'll make life a little bit easier. And I really like that for somebody starting out. Like I really like that 
idea uh, to be selfless by being selfish. And if you want, if you want to get into theory, if you want to get into academia, Keith Johnstone wrote a book called Impro. Impro and then Impro for Storytellers. There's two books that he wrote, and they're great, and they're they're really smart, and they really think about the way things work. They're really beautiful books. Uh, and so if you wanted, if you want to get heady about this stuff, that's a book to start with. Those are two great books. And the one that everyone reads is, is by Del, Del Close. It's called Truth and Comedy. And it's just, that's the story of, of Improv Olympic in Chicago. Actually, IO now. They, the Olympic Committee told them that they can't be Improv Olympic. They got a letter from the Olympic Committee. So now it's just IO. But he's the gentleman who, from Second City, started his own theater and made improv its own thing in Chicago. And he's a really kind of important person. That's his book. And it's it's worth reading. So one of the things that I've liked about the different performances I've seen you do lately particularly the ones at the Indie Fringe, you're mm-hmm. incorporating some folk tales, which of course I love. Do you want to share one of those stories? I know I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't ask you no, beforehand. But no, that's awesome. Like, like, um, there's the bear one. <laughs> there's there's the guy in uh, Antarctica. There. Okay, so... Um, See, the, the purpose of this is to show how well he can do this. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Here's what. Here's a story that I will tell you poorly, right now. Okay. I did a show two years ago mm-hmm. uh, called Bear Fights and Balloon Flights, and the game of that show was to tell the manliest stories I could find. And I was I was doing some research on different Native American tribes, and I uh, I found a book, and I might have shown you this book a while ago, of Inuit folk tales. Okay. And they're horrifying. They're absolutely just, they're all about poop and murder. They're really just <laughs> terrible, terrible stories. Oh. And uh, the one that, that comes in my mind right away is, it's, I'm not going to judge that this is the story that popped into my brain. I'm not going to judge that myself at all. <laughs> uh, it's the story of how people, or how, how we got men and women. Okay. Okay, and it's gross and awful and 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 really kind of brutal. Okay. And I hope we can we can edit it out if you want. To. <laughs> okay. okay <laughs> um, that's what your guts telling you. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to judge it. Um, and so it goes like this: There was two men, and they were alone in an ice floe, and they were hunting, and they they got incredibly lonely. Oh. Uh, yes, they did. Uh, and they got uh, one got so lonely that he he grabbed the other one and ripped off his wiener and made a woman. Whoa! Yes, that's how the first woman came to be, and they were married. Okay. And that's that story. Isn't that horrifying? The, yeah, I'd agree. That's scary. <laughs> it's and like and there. I'm, I you asked me to tell you a story and I I didn't. I just told you. Like the worst fact I could think of, or the worst like bit of folklore I could, mm. I could think of, and I'm so sorry. Well, well, so you you call it the worst though. I mean, this is something that is horrific, but it's one of the many stories in folklore. It's there's something true about it, or about that particular culture. Mm-hmm. And maybe you see yourself reflected in it, 
or I mean, when I analyze folk tales, it's almost the way I will analyze dreams. You know, if it's really speaking to me, it might be because it's reflecting my own fears, it's reflecting my own desires, or it's something. And one of the things I love about folklore is because even within different groups of people, you know, within this Inuit culture mm -hmm. that was passed on generation through generation through generation, <clears throat> I'm not part of that culture. No. But it, because it passed through so many hands, it still is going to ring with a, a truth of humanity about it. It's I, I liken folktales to a pebble that's been in the stream for many, many, many years. And it's it's was rough and then it was smoothed yeah, over absolutely. because it's absolutely. gotten to the root of things. Right. And and okay, and so if we if we take that example, that horrific example, it, it is a smooth pebble in a way. It it's a very clear, very powerful image. Mm. Right. I feel it's been honed. It it does it it I don't know. It it pokes at a wound, right? Like mm -hmm. it it builds a lot of tension fast. Right, right. And perhaps it reminds us of how we're all different. I mean, every person is different from, you know, I'm different than you, both for our genders and where we grew up and who our parents are and what our culture is. And, and so this is a story about the separation where they were the same and then they're pulled apart. Right. But then they're pulled apart only to be married. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's uh and if we're thinking about the the culture, I'm tend to think about how like hard how hard life is up there. Mm -hmm. Right. And like and um you know how quick death comes and how how easily it comes, like like in a Jack London story, right? Mm -hmm. Like like if you make one wrong move then you're going to then you fall Adelaide down a crevasse, goes, yeah. and you're yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, and of course, like if one wrong step means death, and you have to do difficult things all the time to live at the very top of the world where people should not be able to live, of course your folklore is going to be weird. Of course it's going to be kind of yeah. brutal and yeah. stark. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that it's. I don't know that it's any weirder than. Than the background of our own culture. No. Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> I'm wondering, just in the mm, the effort to balance things, if you can now think of another story that's maybe more uplifting or more about growth. Does that make sense? Yes. So we can temper it. <laughs> of course. Of course, this is a story that I actually really like to tell. It's by um, it's by a Canadian storyteller. His name is Robert Munch. Do you know this gentleman? Uh, um, maybe. It's great. Uh, you'll know it. You'll know it. There was a woman, and she sat in the middle of her brand new nursery. She held in her arms her brand new baby boy, okay. and she rocked him back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and she sang. Okay. I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. It's all coming back to me now. You know this one? <laughs> yes. yes. And the boy grew, and he grew and he grew until he was three years old. A monster, 
Uh, he would run. He would run around the house. Uh, he he deliberately smashed jelly jars into the wall. He would write his name on the wall, and she thought that she would go crazy until he was asleep. And when she thought he was asleep, uh, she'd crack open the door to his room and she'd peek her head inside. And if he was asleep, she would crawl to his bed and peek her head up over the bed and pick him up and rock him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And she'd sing, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And again, the boy grew and he grew and he grew until he was a teenager and insane, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he listened to sad music and he locked himself in his room okay. and he drew on his notebook paper inappropriate drawings and uh, he swore in front of grandma. Uh -oh. And I know. <laughs> um, and, and she thought she was going to go crazy uh, until he went to sleep. And... And when she thought he was asleep, and she was sure he was asleep, she would crack the door open to his room. And if he really was asleep, she would crawl to his bed and pick him up in her arms and rock him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And again, she'd sing, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And the boy grew, and he grew, and he grew up. And he got a house all the way across town. And um, they didn't see each other like they used to. But at night, it was dark. Uh, she would get in her station wagon, and she would drive all the way across town. She'd park in front of his house. And she would look up. And if the lights were off in her window, she would get out of her car and she would take the ladder from the top of her car and put it against his window and she would climb up the side. And she'd open the window just a crack. And if he was asleep, she would crawl to his bed and pick him up in her arms and rock him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And she'd sing. I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And again, the boy grew, grew, and as he did, the mother grew and grew old. And one day, she called him on the phone and said, come visit me in the hospital, because I'm very old and I'm very sick. And he did. He sat by her bed and held her hand, and she looked up at him, and she started to try and sing the song, I'll love you forever, and she couldn't. And that night she died, and the boy went home, and he walked to his front door and he uh, put the key in the lock and he, he walked up the stairs and at the top of the stairs he stood and he paused for a long time. He turned and he cracked 
the door to his brand new baby girl's nursery. And he checked to see if she was asleep. And she was. And so he crawled to her bed, peeked over the side, and picked her up in his arms. And he rocked her back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. And he sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And that's the story, I Love You Forever, by Robert Munch. <laughs> yeah, so this this is an interesting story to me. I've also been familiar with it for years, because at this point, it's a classic, you yeah, know, it is. You know, for those of you who are interested, you can definitely find this book and uh, read it to your own children. I think it speaks to how when we love someone and we show them that we love them, that love is going to rub off on them, even if it's not always obvious, even if that child is, for example, a teenager and it's you know all rebellion and it seems like everything's going wrong, but it will eventually come out in the next generation or the way they deal with things in the future. Yeah. And there's a certain faith to it that you just keep singing that song and it'll, it yeah. will continue. Yeah, I agree. It's about unconditional love. Because he's not even, he doesn't even participate in it, right? It's not about, um, it's not about like the, the ways they help each other. It's about mm -hmm. her caring for him, mm. right? And mm -hmm. and you're right, that care rubs off, mm -hmm. right? Like if you love somebody, if you nurture them, if you rock them back and forth in your arms until they're grownups, that will go on. It has to, right? Mm -hmm. It must. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of, what is it, the, the law of physics, the everything that yeah, it, oh, love cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transferred. Thank you, Jason, so much for sharing your thoughts and feelings yeah. with me. And is there anything you want to end on? What if your daughter hears this in thirty years? <laughs> uh oh, uh oh. Okay, um, I what, will tell you this. What would you, you want to say to her? I will shame her for not being interested in that story at all <laughs> because she is not. She hates that story, and so is my wife. Um, <laughs> Uh, because, because uh, for, I don't know, because people die in it. Um, um. well, I, I, I don't know if my daughter were here and we were, we were to talk to her about this, I would tell her, I would give her the same advice I would give to, to myself. You know, you talked about just a second, you, you mentioned your daughter, how she's, she's into, she's into rock and roll right now. She's, she's, that's what she's into. And the best thing she could do right now is to start a band, is to do it, is to do the thing you want to do, to pull the trigger. Are you cursing me, Jason? <laughs> yes. I am cursing you to to uh, having a drummer for a daughter. Oh, yeah. I hope that happens. Um, <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Yes, many, many thanks again, Jason, for gracing me with your presence on our podcast. And now for today's story. This is a Japanese folktale. It's called The Boy Who Drew Cats. 
Once upon a time, there was a boy who loved nothing more in the world than to draw cats. He was the youngest son in his poor family. His parents saw that he didn't like farming, so they decided to send him away to a temple. There he would study to become a priest. Yet when the boy arrived at the temple, the elders were not pleased that he wanted to draw cats all the time. His elders saw that he didn't like being a priest. They decided to send him away. Not sure where to go, the boy wandered the land for many days. Finally, he arrived at an abandoned temple. Not only was the temple a perfect shelter for the boy, but it had a paper screen for a wall. The boy could create a mural full of his favorite creature, cats. He set to work until he had covered the wall with every type of cat. There were fluffy, fat, and thin, striped and solid cats. There were sleeping and playing and pouncing and in cats. Yawning, the boy put down his brush. He explored the temple, looking for a place to eat. Finding a cupboard filled with linens, he nestled down in it and closed the door. In the middle of the night, the boy was awakened by the sound of howling and hissing and screeching. Scared, the boy stayed hidden in the cupboard until the sounds subsided. In the morning, the boy tentatively opened the door. Right away, he saw that the cats he had drawn were not in their original positions. They had moved all about, and some of them had blood on their mouths. Now they were still again as the boy tiptoed through the temple. In the main hall, the boy found the dead body of the goblin rat. The boy realized that this must be the legendary temple haunted by the goblin rat. The goblin rat would come out at night and eat any visitors to the temple. But now the cat drawings had magically defeated it. The boy ran back to his village to share the news that the goblin rat was defeated. The boy was hailed as a hero. The priests gave him the old haunted temple as his new home. People traveled from far and wide to see the magical mural of cats. The end. My thoughts. Many people struggle to find a profession that suits them, and this can be especially hard for creative souls. But if you keep searching, keep doing what you love, everything will fall into place. That has been my experience in any case. May it be for you as well. This story and many others are available in my book, The Alchemy of Art, Stories for the Classroom. If you love this podcast and want to see it continue, support us by going to my website, azirfineart.com, and making a donation on the podcast page. Thanks, everyone. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice.
You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.